Hi, this is Ruth Friedman, and I serve as the Maharat at Ohev Shalom, the National Synagogue in Washington, D.C. And welcome back to my weekly Parsha podcast, Life Imitates Torah. This week we read Parsha Korach, which is a very painful Parsha. It's probably the closest thing that we get to a rebellion within the Israelites in the Torah. And if you don't want to call it a rebellion, well, it's certainly a very serious challenge to Moshe and Aharon's authority. And we know that it's serious because Moshe has a very serious reaction and basically screams back at Korach when Korach approaches him in the beginning of the Parsha. And also there's a very serious punishment, a very memorable punishment, that the ground opens and swallows them whole at the end of the story. And so it's definitely something that's very, I think, present in our minds and something that we're drawn to when we think about what are dramatic stories in the Torah. And so I wanted to consider two questions today. The first is, what actually happened in this story? And the second is, what made all of this worthy of death? And not just death, but this dramatic death. And I think that the, the really the best way to read this story is through the lens of Rabbi Menachem Liebtag's piece on his website, Tanakh.org. And he does a really beautiful job of breaking down the story and separating it into distinct parts to help us get the best sense of what's going on. And with, upon his close read of the text, what he really articulates most importantly is that there are actually two separate threads to the story of Korach. Actually, one year when I taught the Parsha, I, I took the entire story and color-coded it to show that there are within it, there's really three groups. There's the times when the two groups are united as one, that's the first, and then there's times when those two groups are, se- are separate, and that's the second and the third. So, the, when the story opens, Korach, the, everyone is one big group, right? It's in the beginning of the, the first pasuk of the Parsha that Korach takes, goes with Datan and Aviram and On Ben Pelet, were descendants of Reuven. So he's, he's teaming up with other groups to all approach Moshe together and to complain. And then we see that's really when it starts to break down into two separate stories that kind of get smushed and overlapped together. So the first distinct group is Korach and his 250 followers. And it seems that they are challenging Aharon having the kahuna, that they think that they should have it. Now, the Abar Benel articulates the challenge well, and he says, well, that Korach and his followers, they believe that they should have been chosen by God. Why? Because Levi had four sons, Amram, Yitzhar, Hebron, and Uziel. And Amram, we know, is Moshe's father. And so Moshe got the political leadership. And so, okay, it feels like maybe then Yitzhar, the next son, his descendants should have the kahuna. They should have the spiritual leadership. Why is it if Levi had four sons, that Amram, the eldest son, why does he? Why do his children get all of the honors, and it's not split up amongst Yitzhar, Hebron, and Uziel? And so Korach, who's the son of Yitzhar, he comes along with these two hundred and fifty men and says, "Hey, why do you get the kahuna? Why can't we get it also? Right, Rav Lachem, you have too much." The second group of people that are form this whole band of a rebellion are the sons of Ruvain. That's really led by Datam and Aviram, and then also Omben Pellet thrown in there. Now, they seem, when to when they speak to Moshe, this is when they, they reject Moshe's invitation to join them, they seem to be mad that Moshe is still in charge, 
They're in the desert. Now they, they've lost the ability to go into the land. And now Moshe's still in charge, you say, right? You still think you're in charge of us? So it seems like they're expressing political frustration, that they want, that they're upset that Moshe is still the somehow the leader of them, even though their entire destiny has devolved um, into disaster. And this makes sense because they're the children of Ruvain, who's the firstborn. And so they're probably resentful and feel like, well, all right, Moshe's failed. So now maybe they should have the turn because after all, their father is the firstborn, sort of similar to this idea of Korach, that this is something that should really be based on genealogy. Now, these two groups don't only exist separately in their claims, but they also are killed separately. So Korach's 250 followers, they're consumed by fire, right? They have to bring their fire pans and there's that whole thing. And then they're consumed by fire. Datan and Aviram's group, the second group, that's actually the group that's swallowed up by the ground. Korach's group is not. And interestingly, it's worth noting as a side note that Korach, based on this Parsha, is not actually ever killed. He's not part of the 250, and he's also not clearly part of Datavanaviram's camp that's swallowed up by the ground. Now, later in the Torah, we're told that he was killed, but it's just interesting to note that it's not explicit that he actually ever goes down with the rest of the groups that he led. Okay, so that was the first question. What happened? Now we move on to the second question. What made this worthy of death? Now, I think that the reason it's worth it to spend a minute on this question is because, of, as many people have noted, their complaints aren't that crazy. It's not, people have a right to question why our leaders are who they are. It's not so terrible to say, hey, Moshe, you know, you, so far you haven't been doing a great job. How come you're still in charge? Or how come Moshe Naharon, you get to have all the leadership to yourself? We've all had moments where we felt jealous, where we felt like we were losing out and we said something like that. We've all had moments where we looked at someone else doing their job and thought, hey, I could do their job better than they could. Maybe these aren't our proudest moments, but they're pretty human moments. And so why is it here that they are punished so harshly for doing something that in many ways is very human. And I think that the answer to that is lies in the Torah's general polemical nature against merit-based, I mean, excuse me, pro-merit-based um, entitlements and honors and against gen genetic honors. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that the entire Torah really seeks to deconstruct the idea of primogenitor, of the firstborn son being the one who automatically gets to inherit, automatically gets the leadership positions, etc. As we've discussed before, we've, the Torah makes very clear that it is a merit-based structure, that you get a position of leadership not because you're the firstborn or because you're the wealthiest or whatever, you get it if you deserve it, if it's something that's appropriate to your personality and something that you've earned. And I think here, then, if we consider, as we did a few minutes ago, what exactly these complaints were and who the people were alleging them, they're all complaints based on birth order. Korach and his people want the kahuna because they feel like their father was next in line and so they deserved it. The sons of Ruvain, they want the positions of leadership because they feel like, well, they're the firstborn child of the 12 and so they deserve it. 
There's nothing here about I've earned it or I think I'd be good at it. It's just a matter of annoyance that someone else has it and you don't. And I think that we can argue that that's why the punishment against them is so strong because that is such a, a corrosive and toxic attitude. And we see all the time that there are horrible leaders in the world who've done really terrible things because they became leaders solely because of their birth order. And that's not something that we can have as part of our society. Now, I wanted to make one last point when thinking about Korach, and that is that I saw articulated this week and really only considered for the first time, which is that this whole story of Korach comes on the heels of the people experiencing an enormous trauma. As we talked about in last week's Parsha, the Israelites, after the sin of the spies, of the Meraglim, of the scouts, they find out that they are going to die in the desert. They're not going to get into the land of Israel. And we know, and the Torah says, we eat a blue, right? They, they entered a state of mourning. They become extremely, they're just devastated, so upset by this news. And this story happens almost immediately afterwards. And I think that this is something that's a makes it's a really interesting point for this year. It's something I don't I don't know if any of us ever would have come up with this or thought about this quite in this light in any other year. Because we now know what it's like as a society to experience trauma. Now, I'm not necessarily saying it's trauma in the same way, the finding out you can't enter the land of Israel, but what it means to find out news that the life and the direction you thought it was going in, it's all going to be upended, that so many things are out of your control and that you just have to wait. So much of COVID has been waiting, trying to do the responsible thing and waiting. And there's so many intense emotional ramifications of this. And I think that, you know, we all deserve as much care and love and patience with each other and with ourselves as possible. But I do think this story also illustrates that there are some negative things that can emerge from a community experiencing trauma. And that is, it makes people act a little bit crazy. It generates a tremendous amount of personal angst. And we see that that here can actually have a collective effect. We've seen individuals over this past year get upset about something and, and lash out. And we've also seen people do that in more communal settings as well. Um, people are breaking up with friends, they're breaking up relationships, they're perhaps lashing out at their local rabbis or politicians or whatever. I mean, everyone I know has experienced someone acting out of the norm and harsher than they anticipated. And I think here we also see that perhaps that's what happened as well. Perhaps Korach was able to assemble a group of multiple parties, all of whom are have different complaints, because the situation, the circumstances that the Israelites found themselves in, were ripe for that kind of fighting, for that kind of angst, for that kind of anger. And that's also one of the reasons that Moshe lashes out so strongly at them. Perhaps Moshe felt like, wait a minute, where is this even coming from? This isn't even legitimate. It's coming out of nowhere. But we know that a community experiencing trauma, it, it's much easier to, to take those feelings that we usually are pretty good at suppressing and drawing them up to the surface. Now, really, based on this, you would think, well, then we should just exercise solely compassion right? This, this is coming not of a bad place, but it's just a, it's an unfortunate human reaction to a very painful situation. But here I actually found um, Rabbi Lee Tag's concluding remarks on his piece on his website, really, I think, essential for understanding Korach. 
And he concludes with, Parsha Korach thus teaches us that whenever a dispute arises over community leadership or religious reform, before reaching conclusions, we must carefully examine not only the claims, but also the true motivations behind them. On a personal level as well, every individual must constantly examine the true motivations behind all of his spiritual endeavors. And I love this point of Rabbi Lee Tags because our reaction, most of our reaction to this kind of behavior should be one of compassion. It should be one of saying, oi, this person or these people or all of us are going through a hard time. And so we should be able to all be patient with each other and under, you know, just try to be understanding and try to power through it. But I think Rabbi Liebtag here also articulates another point to complement that attitude, which is also that it's on each and every one of us to really reflect on our motivations for anything that we're doing during this time. If I'm feeling really upset at my friend or really upset at my partner or really upset at my kid, maybe before I just lash out, I should take a step back and say, okay, Ruth, what's really bothering me right now? Now, of course, this is true all the time, but I, th- I think his point is that, especially during times of, of challenge and times of crisis, where normally we don't really have the bandwidth to engage in that kind of self re- self-reflection, that kind of introspection. But one of the lessons of Korach is, well, you, you got to push yourself a little bit farther on that. And that's really hard to do. It's not easy, but I think it's really important. Because if you don't, if you just indulge that desire to to just kind of lash out at people and blame them for what's going on, even if it's not their fault, that might be therapeutic for you, but that's going to just tear your life apart and it's going to tear apart your relationship with the person you're lashing out at. It's going to tear apart your community if you're just going to indulge that desire without first being able to take a step back and say, okay, is this a legitimate complaint? Or am I lashing out at someone because really I'm upset with my own situation, I'm upset that something's out of my control, etc. And I think part of what we see in Korach's complaint, certainly in Ruvain's complaints especially, the sons of Ruvain, is, Moshe, you failed us. We're not making it into the land of Israel and you're still in charge? Right? We see here a glimmer of what's really on their minds. And what is on their minds is, we just lost our chance. The faith that we thought we were going to have, we don't have anymore. But the lesson here is, that wasn't Moshe's fault. That was the people's fault. And if the sons of Reuven are unable to engage in that process of self-reflection, of recognizing, no, it was the people's fault for going along with what the Maragalim said, and not being able to listen to Kali, not being able to say, you know what, God's protected us until now, maybe God will protect us moving forward, that that's what landed them in this position in the first place. And when the children of Ruvain point to Moshe and say, no, it's your fault instead, or you should be displaced, what they're really saying is we aren't capable of doing that self-reflection. And so instead, we're just going to lash out at our leadership and make you feel bad because we can't take responsibility. And that's the exact point Rabbi Liebtag is making. Just because you're in pain, just because life is hard, doesn't mean you get to recuse yourself from taking responsibility for your own actions. And so I hope that this can help all of us try to keep our, our heads on our shoulders, try to stay sane with each other, with ourselves um, over the months ahead as we continue um, to all work through in real time this process of healing from COVID and remember that we have to be patient with ourselves, but we also have to be patient with others. Shabbat Shalom.